welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being. In this episode, we'll be talking about how human behaviours can affect outcomes in healthcare with a little bit of Christmas thrown in. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ with an interest in doctors' well-being. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a GP by training and an in- with an interest in quality and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on well-being, which is incredibly important for everybody during this COVID-19 pandemic. During the current circumstances, anything that can improve NHS staff's working condition must be welcome. Today we're going to be speaking to a surgeon and an airline pilot about how small changes to behaviour can improve patient safety and workplace well-being. So we're delighted to have on the podcast two experts who can tell us a bit more about what human factors are. Hi, I'm Graham Shaw. I'm Director of Critical Factors, a Skillshare consultancy taking skills from uh, aviation into other safety critical sectors, including obviously healthcare. Uh, I'm also a captain for a major airline flying long haul aircraft around the world. Hello, my name is Peter Brennan. I'm a maxillofacial surgeon uh, based on the south coast in Portsmouth. Uh, I've got a particular interest in human factors, having published about 70 or 80 papers now on it and a recent PhD in the subject as well. So let's let's kick off with a, a bit more of an introductory question. Um, Graham, could you tell us a bit about what exactly human factors means um, and what role do they play in, in the airline industry? So human factors is a really broad term and it covers everything from designing systems and procedures and then maybe checklists to the equipment that we use, how it interfaces with individuals and often that's termed under ergonomics. But then it also extends to behavioural human factors, which is how we as individuals or teams come together and perform. In the airline industry, obviously, there's a huge uh, focus on systems and procedures to try to standardise as much as possible and work out the optimum way of of doing so. But also, there's a a very strong emphasis on behavioural human factors, how we work together. That stemmed from identifying really uh, back in the sort of 50s originally, why high performing individuals were making mistakes, often very talented individuals working well on their own, but finding it more difficult coming together as a team. And Peter, just from listening to Graham there, I can see some overlap myself between healthcare and what he's just discussed. But I was wondering if you could kind of talk us through how human factors work um, in healthcare. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I think for me, Abby, it's actually very simple. We're all human and we all make mistakes and we make on average about five to seven simple mistakes a day. So it could be something like forgetting to put the washing machine out because just on your way out, you're distracted by a telephone call or you're answering a text or you're multitasking. So we make five to seven mistakes a day and uh, and that doesn't matter. Sorry, that doesn't mean whether you're whether you're in um, healthcare aviation, it doesn't matter. We all make those mistakes. So for me, it's about minimising error um so we we use the term never event you know you will never completely eliminate ever uh, error but um minimizing error through some of the things that graham uh, talks about and i think um, all too often in healthcare, a lot of this is common sense application. And all too often in healthcare, we leave common sense at the front door when we come to work so that means um 
uh, we don't we don't have breakfast, for example, because we don't think we need it. So we're not optimised for ourselves. We miss lunch. We don't drink the two litres of fluid that we should be drinking. Um, we're multitasking. Um, we have we have steep authority gradients. All of those things they raise the risk of error. Um, they increase. Um, the chances of you know patient events um, lowering patient safety and also team working as well you know um, morale and things within uh, teams so uh, so for me all of my work has been around uh, human factors application in those areas to reduce um, medical error improve patient safety and improve morale and team working as you say Peter a lot of those things seem quite commonsensical it's interesting to me that they aren't already kind of, I don't know, incorporated in a medical curriculum or already just part of the way that you work. Yes, I mean, I think I think historically uh, a lot of people, including surgeons, will think, well, this doesn't apply to me, you know, and I've certainly worked for surgeons that would operate for eight hours nonstop. And um, and that's always the way they've done it. And um, and whether that's uh, egos or whatever, I just don't know. But um, you mentioned about uh, human factors and, oh, it's it's nonsense. It doesn't apply to me. I've never had a problem, what have you. Um, I would then float to them, would you drive from London to Edinburgh, for example, nonstop? And then they say, well, of course I wouldn't. I stop I stop when I get to, uh, to Birmingham at three hours. It's like, well, yes, you stop and you have a comfort break or a cup of tea or coffee but you're happy to operate on another patient. Um, and then the penny the penny drops, Abby, really. So um, I think it's a cultural thing. Um, you know, it is, it is slow. And I think Graham will confirm it's taken a long time in aviation to, uh, to embed some of these things. Um, of course, the difference between uh, aviation and healthcare is you, um, you have a catastrophic crash and, you know, three, four, 500 people die. Um, in healthcare, you know there are there are deaths and there's about six or seven hundred never events every year despite the WHO checklist so wrong site surgery and things they're the apex predators there's all these other serious harm going on as well um, but you know we don't we don't have those uh, those catastrophic events that uh, prompt change so a change is happening uh, albeit slowly Graham you might better expand on that yeah, in the 70s, really, the aviation, so the commercial aviation industry uh, really started to recognise that aircraft without any faults were crashing. And so it prompted them to look very carefully as to how teams were working together and build strong threat and error management systems, incorporating human factors. And what that's really changed in a practical sense is that you know, we acknowledge error. It's just part of our working day. And it's more a case of how can we plan to avoid errors happening, both in how we design our systems, but most importantly, how we work as individuals and teams. And then accept, OK, things will slip through the net, but we must be managing those you know, to, so that there's no implication of those things. And we're very good at recognising human performance varies you know if we're tired if we're not fed properly our blood sugar level has dropped uh, we, we're very conscious of you know, when are the peaks and troughs going to be in the workload so that we can think you know now is a good time maybe to take a break whereas at this point actually we need focus we need quiet we need to be really on our guard for something a little bit more uh, stressful as a situation to manage and because that's institutionalised, it's completely acceptable to talk about it. You know, we don't 
we're not heroes. We don't perceive ourselves to be uh, doing anything other than just safeguarding the operation throughout our working day and trying to make it as enjoyable for everybody along the way too because a happy team is, is usually a far greater performing team. So it, it, it's not only keeping it safer, but it's making our day more pleasant as we go. Yeah, it's interesting, um, Graham, that you mentioned kind of a happy team is a safer team. And obviously the focus of the podcast is, is normally talking about well-being. And I was just reflecting when Peter talking about making mistakes that, you know, um, this morning I picked up the wrong keys and I tried to open the front door with my car keys, you know, but that was partly <laughs> because I was, you know, doing the school run, worrying about getting back in time for the podcast. I had a lot of different things in my mind and the kind of sort of burden, the kind of mental load was very high. Um, mm. And is there a way in which kind of human factors helps teams to kind of manage teams to manage that kind of mental load and, and those pressures so that they're kind of less overwhelming absolutely and I, I think it's really important for team leaders at the start of, of coming together as a team at the start of the day for setting the tone you know you, you, we, we all there's a sort of classic phrase that you know when you meet someone you form an impression after seven seconds well you know when I walk in to meet my crew first thing in in the, the duty um I, you know I know in the back of my mind I have a few seconds for to make that impression and and the aim that I wanted to achieve is that they will be at ease it doesn't mean that uh, I don't expect everyone to f- perform professionally uh, there's a difference between having you know a, a, a good day and a uh, and an inappropriately amusing day you know we're not questioning professional boundaries here as opposed to just make people comfortable that they can discuss a problem with me, bring something to my attention and not be worried that it's trivial and they shouldn't be bothering me with it. Uh, you know, I, I want to know what's going on. And if if their perception is that something's serious, whereas actually in my world, really, it's not that meaningful. I, I, I'm, st- I'm very happy with that. That's fine. You know, I, as long as it doesn't interrupt or distract. And that's also for me to manage that, that, that aspect. So it's about setting a scene that everybody is comfortable and feel they're valued because everyone wants to be appreciated and included. Hi, I'm Sabine Goodwin, the coordinator of the Independent Food Aid Network, or IFAN. IFAN is the charity that the BMJ has chosen for its annual appeal this year. IFAN supports a range of emergency food aid providers operating across the UK, including over 400 independent food banks. Their work has never been needed more. IFAN also campaigns and advocates for the systemic changes that would reduce the need for charitable food aid in the first place. You can find out more about our work and support us through our donate button at www.foodaidnetwork.org.uk. Thank you very much indeed for your support. Peter, we know that some of the sort of greatest catastrophic errors in healthcare in the UK in recent times, like the mid-staffs scandal, were to do with staff not feeling able to voice their concerns alongside a lot of other system factors. Yes. What do you think are the kind of barriers in healthcare culturally that, that make that kind of easy raising of concerns difficult? Well, historically, again, there 
there has always been a steep hierarchy uh, and that is confirmed in aviation as well and there's several uh, well-known plane crashes due to the the first officer not being able to challenge the captain even though they knew they knew there was a fault and they felt unable to um, and hierarchy does still exist and I think there has to be some hierarchy in the team yes of course because you know the team leader the consultant is ultimately responsible so we have to know that there is someone who is in charge but I think you know, it's really important to lower that hierarchy such that anyone from the healthcare support worker, the medical student, the nurse, um, everyone can can speak up if they have any concerns whatsoever. And Graham mentioned that at the start. So, um, so for me, in terms of team brief, uh, we'll do the introductions. We welcome everyone on board, uh, uh, and I use that term on board very, very much from the from the aviation, you know. And and um, um, if there's any, if there's any new people there, I usually get them to introduce themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You've you've only got a few seconds, but they think, oh wow, we're we're part of the team. Uh, and then we will say, look, please, if you have any concerns at all, please don't hesitate to speak up. And we published an article, as you as you probably know, last year in the BMJ about hierarchy and empowering junior doctors uh, to speak up. But it but it's far more than junior doctors. It's anyone that you're working with um, in that team. And I think the key to it is without without fear and without retribution. So if you speak up and actually you've said something silly, for example, uh, and you know it's it's you've overlooked something or it. Um, you know, it could be seen as silly. My answer would be, well, thank you very much for that. You know, uh, actually, it's this and I thank you for pointing that out. Um, I'm never going to say what a stupid thing you've said. I would never say that. You know, it's a learning thing. And that person then realised perhaps that um, that what they've said is um, isn't isn't um, relevant, perhaps. But, you know, they're empowered. And that's what we need to do across healthcare. Uh, just as they've done in aviation and and indeed other high reliability organisations, HROs as they're called. Can I just add a few bits on that? Um, I, I think it's really interesting because th- there can be a kind of cultural um, sort of social conformity sometimes where you know, people go along with systems that are, are in place because nobody is speaking up and it's very easy to just feel that you're you're not empowered and that it must be okay because everybody else is going along with it. That's very hard for people to break through, but ultimately, as professionals in an industry with a duty of, of, of care, I mean, that's all the sort of legal framing of things, but more than that, you know, people in healthcare are passionate. You know, they've come into this for a reason and they're trying to look after people. So you know, sometimes just punching through really it can be challenging but you won't be the only person with that that thought process it's just everyone else is kind of hiding their doubts and maybe just that authority gradient is is pushing down on them it reminds me of that expression you sometimes hear when people say something like that's just how we do things here is one of the most dangerous sentences uh, absolutely but actually you know, for typically for team leaders on the other side of the table you know they they may well be, they may be sensing it, they may just be blind to it, they may have convinced themselves. And so sometimes, you know, the, the, the more junior members of a team just, just speaking up can just be enough to trigger that, actually, do you know what, you're right, we shouldn't be looking at things this way. Maybe that isn't the right way of, of doing things. But Peter touched on just a couple of really important things as well. You mentioned, Peter, to taking the time. 
um, to to give people the attention in, in maybe introducing themselves. And actually, it's very common that we're all under time pressure. You know, we're rushing to do things. You know, we, there's not a lot of time between checking in and having to get to a flight or to start that operation with a long list. Sometimes just those few seconds by showing you know, that that in itself, by giving that time, you're showing the team that you do value them just by t- it's only a few seconds and it can be really powerful. And the other thing, Peter, that you mentioned that's so powerful is thanking people. If, if people have had the courage to, to push through their own nerves to, to point something out to you, the power of thanking them means they'll speak to you again, even, as you say, if it's not something that, that really is of concern to you. And that's and that's also Graham important at the at the end of the day at the end of your flight you know to to thank the team. Um, so we always have we always have good days. Sometimes we have bad days. Um, you know, as long as we're not we're not compromising patients, that's uh, um, you know what we have to strive for always. But um, whenever we've had a day, it's thank you very much. You know, uh, what have we learned today? What are the good points? Um, from from today's operating list or clinic uh what things could we do better perhaps next time uh what could we learn together um and there's no i in team graham for me you know we are we are a team i might be the surgeon or you might be the captain or um you know a gastroenterologist whatever whatever it is but we work as a team and we need each other to deliver the highest standard of care for patients yeah, absolutely. I think when, when you're talking about and reflecting on the day at the end, it's really valuable to have that team discussion. And it can, if you're not careful, become very self-critical for people. They'll talk about it, maybe things they wish they'd have done differently. I, I always try and turn that around and say, look, you know, we, we can reflect on ourselves or have a, a one-to-one about a specific issue. But actually, you know, this is about what we did as a team right now. And I could also question, well, what more could I have done to help you with that situation? So you know, you, the way you frame it, it's about making it a positive learning experience because what we've done is done. What we can focus on now is what can we make the next one better? I think that positive learning experience is is so important because particularly at times of high pressure and high stress and obviously the health care system and the whole world is experiencing a high pressure situation. I think um, it's so easy to sort of be have that negative recall bias um, and only think about the things that that went wrong. Um, And if you think about the safety movement, you know, moving away from from safety one and learning from our mistakes, but to safety two, which is about learning from the actually 95% of the time that we do get it right. Um, it's really important for teams to kind of stop and reflect and think about all the things that went really well that day. Uh, absolutely. I, I spent, so I was going to say, I, I spent four years training and testing colleagues in flight simulators and inevitably 99.9% of things were done to a very good standard, if not 100%. So you know, when you're talking then about people who come out of a simulator, often feeling a bit deflated about that 0.1%, and you think, actually, you've really got to balance that. You know, four hours of, of fairly intense activity, something is likely to be not as, as consistently high a standard as, as everything else. So it's about learning and making it really reflecting on the positive. I mean, I guess that's why I use that term uh, apex predator for the never events. If you think there's four and a half, five million operations done every year in the National Health Service and, you know, a few do go wrong and there is wrong site surgery despite WHO and things. So, you know, 99.9%, it's 
it's a good experience and it's and it's enhancing that experience for the team so that everyone actually wants to go to work and they want that well-being they actually want to go to work and enjoy going to work rather than thinking oh goodness I've I've got to work with Dr Y today or I don't want to work with that consultant because he's he's rude to me or what have you it's 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 enhancing experience and you perform so much better Graham as you as you well know if you're if you're optimized and you're and you're happy at the at the job you do you get more out of out of people as well yeah absolutely you know we, we, as professionals we we do an all, we put in an awful lot of effort to reach a kind of fully qualified position and a lot of us have done that because also we enjoy the process of learning so it's naturally to try to keep developing ourselves in that way uh, it shouldn't stop but it stops in a more structured way once you reach consultant level or captain level because you don't have quite the same continuum of mapped out career progression so yeah it just needs that sense of well where do I want to go how, how am I I'm now totally responsible for my own professionalism it's a bad day if you don't learn something new yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering whether maybe some people listening to this might not know as much about human factors as obviously you both do and I wonder if there are any tips Peter you might have for say a consultant or a senior doctor sort of in their working day how they can introduce this into the way that they work um so i think i think everyone's got slightly different working practices haven't they uh so that's a that's a very difficult question abby oh, but like i said at the start a lot of this is common sense application it's not about me it's about the team and it's about everyone uh it's about making sure you look after yourself um so you you do even if even if you're running late you know just and people say to me I can't take a break. You know, I've got eight patients waiting. I can't. Take it. It's like the thing is, you can take a break if it, even if it's only for two or three minutes, and you just stop. Um, you get something to drink. You just sit down. You walk away from that situation. And we've published as well on um, on operating. And you know, if you operate for long periods of time. Uh, your performance does slowly deteriorate. Um, and if you stop for a break you know, five, 10 minutes, and then you start up again, you actually catch that time up because you've, because you're optimized. And I mentioned, I think earlier about the drinking and things. So if you lose one kilogram uh, of body weight through, through perspiration and water loss, your cognitive function falls by 20%. And again, that happens very, very slowly. So you don't realize it's happening to you. So you need, you know, you need the time to look, to look after yourself and the team Abbey as well. That's absolutely critical. For me in theatre, our, our scrub nurse will say to me at two or three hours in, and of course, bear in mind that if I'm operating, I've probably got tunnel vision. I'm concentrating intensely on the job I'm trying to do. So I lose track of time. I'm not looking up at the clock. And the time goes very, very quickly. And the scrub nurse will say to me, Peter, you've been going two and a half, three hours. You know, you're just beginning to fatigue. What she really means is that she's getting tired. Um, and we all feel that. And then we, and then we down tool if it's safe to do so the anaesthetist is there the anaesthetist will swap round as well they've got they've got trainees and things helping and then everyone goes away for 10-15 minutes and comes back refreshed and like I've said you catch that time up. I think one of the things that I, I would say is human factors is, is a very broad term and we're all familiar I think pretty much everybody will be familiar with elements of it you know you might talk about uh, authority gradient or a need to to take a break or, or just on a simplistic level and, and it doesn't help that anything technical like a, a, an area like human factors there will be jargon to go with it what 
we do is we take a, a kind of competency-based approach. So we look at it and think, so step back a moment and think about what the skills and, and knowledge are that go with it. So we look at the social aspects, how you work with the team, how you communicate, and your professionalism, which would incorporate as well your own well-being in terms of hydration. Then you've got all your technical skills, which are what makes Peter a surgeon or me a pilot. And then the cognitive skills, you know, your situational awareness, how you keep aware of what's going on in the world, how you analyse problems, uh, how you manage the workload. By putting all those together as one set of competencies, it gives a kind of a a graphic, it gives a, a whole set of skills that you can think of in terms of how you need to maintain and, and go on and develop and where your strengths and weaknesses are. So I, I would certainly say it's quite difficult just coming at it with these snippets of understanding and that without that picture to understand where you're at on a journey. And we are trying to encourage uh, institutions in healthcare to take that on board because I think it's much more helpful for people practically uh, to actually drive their human factor development. I mean, I guess that's why when, when Abby asked the question, it's, uh, it's, it's an impossibly difficult question to answer, Graham, isn't it? Because human yeah, factors encompasses so, so many. But, but I guess what I really meant to say, Abby, is just, it's just that common sense application and actually just, you know, you're not invincible. You know, we are, we're all, fa- we're all fallible. We all make mistakes. Um, you know, you, you cannot you cannot work for nine hours whatever without without a break and um, another fact for example if you're awake for more than 18 hours um, you know so we we do on call shifts or whatever and we and we do these long things then your your cognitive function is the same as being twice over the legal UK alcohol limit in terms of performance um, and of course in aviation you've you've got fairly set set hours and things um, I guess it's different in healthcare because uh, you know it's a a public company and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we do have to recognise um, some of these factors uh, that will affect um, our performance and ultimately then, Abby, um, affect how we're, how we're treating patients. I was asked a while ago um, how to summarise human factors, the behavioural human factors, and it struck me watching someone with uh, nursery-aged kids that actually you, you could almost distill it down to look after yourself talk to each other and play nicely because really it's very natural to look at that on a on a kind of simple level when you're trying to look after your kids and they're they're maybe squabbling and and just trying to get through the day but of course you know we're talking about adults in a professional environment I'm certainly not trying to lighten the, the importance of it but actually there is an element that we forget all that when we come into our professional technical work we've become so focused on the expectation of us to perform to a high level, that it's very easy to forget all the other things, that we're, we're human, we just need to, to keep to those rule sets. And we recognise it when we're caring for our children, but we don't necessarily uh, see it as instinctive to carry that forward into our own adult lives. You know, every parent knows that when the kids are squabbling, they are hungry or tired. Um, you know, and that's your first reaction, isn't it? Have you, when did you last have a drink? Do you need a break? You know, have you had a snack? And yet when we're adults, even in a professional environment, we, we're not so good at recognising in ourselves or in others. Actually, do you know what? Probably it's no surprise that we're not communicating well because we've had a long day and nobody's had a drink, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah. we're not wanting to infantilise us, but I think it, we are human, as you say. 
So we use we use a mnemonic called HALT um, in human factors terms. A lot of people would have heard of that. So that stands for hungry, angry. So if you're if you're angry, you've had a um, a row at home, or you've got marital disharmony, or whatever, um, you're much more likely to make a mistake. If you're late or lonely, so you're you know making decisions on your own, or you're or you're running late, as we as we mentioned before. Um, and if you're tired, those those four factors, you're much more likely to make a mistake. And so, what does halt mean? It actually means stop. Um, and if it's only just for a few minutes, uh, just stop, um, refocus, regroup with the team, uh, have something to eat or drink um, and think again. Um, and I've just remembered what I was going to say was um, obviously in surgery and uh, many other uh, specialties, of course, we have to learn the technical skills, but all these human factors are kind of non-technical skills. So the communication, um, the situation awareness that Graham talks about, the professionalism, um, lowering the hierarchy, uh, workload management. I mean, there's, there's a whole load of things we could we could talk about. Yeah, at one point you asked whether you know, shouldn't this be uh, included in medical education, and and there is an element of that. There's definitely I'm finding the more people I'm speaking to who are uh, SHOs or regs have have actually ex- encountered human factor training to some extent. I think where there there could be a little bit more progress is in embedding that training. Th- uh, throughout rather than uh, small standalone modules, which is really where I think aviation has been so successful is every training encounter focuses on the technical and the non-technical. And I know increasingly in simulation that's that's being brought in, which is fantastic. But it should be something that throughout there's there's a focus on rather than just looking at the steps of learning a new procedure focus also on well what were the other people in the room required to do at the time so how were you getting that need communicating to them and uh, you know were they distracting you at any point so how are you going to manage that how the way you asked for that piece of equipment or, or for some medicines to be brought in there's all sorts of opportunity to foster a, a kind of continuum of, of uh, encountering human factor education now, all I was going to say is the General Medical Council have introduced uh, human factors as part of their generic professional capabilities. So, um, you know, every every doctor should understand uh, something about human factors. And I think af- after Bauer Garber and various other things, the GMC now do recognise the importance of, of human factors and organisational influences and all those other things um, uh, in doctors' performance. And um, in fact, we've written an article in the BMJ with them, Abby, as you as you know, earlier earlier this year about about human factors and GMC recognition. So um, it's it's really really important. Soft skills, but absolutely vital. I was just going to ask Graham what is potentially a stupid question. So apologies, but I just wondered with you talking there whether this is something that comes naturally to some people and for others they have to learn it more or whether kind of everyone starts on a level playing field? Um, well, I, I've got to start by saying there's no such thing as a stupid question. I, you know, that, that, that's a classic sense of, you know, we, we feel inhibited in, in asking uh, when we shouldn't. It's, it's always a valid uh, to, to inquire. And you're absolutely right, though. And this is one of the things that we've found. We, we've spent a lot of time observing catalabs in operating theatres. And one thing that's been really interesting is it, 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 there is a 
perception amongst some that you know we, aviation should come and teach human factors to healthcare. I, I, I don't subscribe to that particularly. My, my view is that uh, there's plenty of human factor skills embedded in healthcare anyway. People are naturally attuned at varying levels to, to these skills. So what I think is sometimes unfortunate is because human factors hasn't been uh, an area that's that's kind of eminent within healthcare, they're not talking about those issues and why pe- those that are good are good. What behaviours are they demonstrating that make them good? Everyone in the in the, the the unit will know who the people are that they like to work with and why and why they're an effective leader. And they're typically they may not even be the most technically competent in the team they'll be perfectly competent but they may not be leaders necessarily in that aspect but they'll be great communicators or they'll really value the team so people naturally like them uh, and like working with them but unless you celebrate those skills then you're not getting that learning out there it's just sort of being infused to some and it's not helping those who maybe aren't as strong in those areas to develop them because there hasn't been the messaging of well this is what makes communication effective you know as peter says if you just take that moment to talk to the team and set the scene at the beginning of the day then you'll get more out of the team and they'll enjoy more working more with you but if if you're working in your silo as a surgeon with your team then you're not learning that from your colleagues either so it's about just constantly identifying best practice showing people what role model behavior looks like uh, and celebrating that. Peter, do you think that this kind of culture of NHS heroes, you know, clap for the NHS, do you think it's made it more difficult for people working in the front lines to admit kind of errors or tiredness at this time? Um well, I think I think we're in a we're in a really unusual um, and unprecedented situation, aren't we? And it's uh, you know just when we thought that that the pandemic might be over, the second wave is uh, is coming and pressures going up and uh, number of admissions and unfortunately deaths. We've now we've now passed the fifty thousand death mark in the UK, which is uh, really upsetting. Um, I think I think you know the public recognises um, the uh, the value of the NHS and. Uh, um, I mean, I guess it's a bit cyclical in some respects because you know there's but there's been times when the public have been anti the NHS and things and funding and things. Um, I think we are under a lot of pressure and stress. There's there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, if you look, various studies have said that uh, one in one in five people, I think, I think their mental health has suffered. Uh, may even be higher than that, and um, they're feeling low. They're feeling a bit depressed and things. Um, so and it's very difficult isn't it you know going into the winter with with the situation probably likely to get worse um but you know i'd i'd actually spin it round and, and say let's look at the positives and uh, you know frontline workers are doing a fantastic job working over and above um putting extra hours in really really caring trying to do everything that we can for uh, patients and that and that really should be a celebration and yes there are going to be mistakes um you know we mentioned right at the start that that we're human we all make mistakes but those mistakes are actually pretty low really you know um Graham mentioned, you know, 99.9% of the time, things are good. So, 
you know, that's where the well-being, the resilience, the good team working, all that comes into play. Um, and, you know, if, we, if you have if you have a bad day or you have you have a patient uh, that unfortunately dies, then the team comes together and, and kind of shares that um, rather than you just being isolated. Um, but but I think we have to celebrate the, the amazing uh, job that that our colleagues have and are, are currently doing across uh, healthcare. Um, and it's not just doctors, it's all healthcare workers, ab- absolutely everyone. It's um, an amazing institution. That's a really important message. Thank you, Peter. Now, Thank you. Um, maybe finally, although that would have been a nice place to end, but I would be remiss if we didn't mention the lovely piece on Father Christmas that you've written for BMJ Opinion about how Father Christmas might incorporate human factors into his into his working day, I could call it. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, so actually, I think we talk, we talk about well-being and things. Well, I think uh, Father Christmas uh, takes um, life work balance to the to the extreme because he obviously, <laughs> obviously only works one day out of out of three three hundred and sixty four, um, and and he he uh, he encompasses so many of the of the human factors. So, you know, each of the houses there is there's usually a glass of wine put out for him. I mean, that's um, drinking on the job, which I guess we shouldn't really encourage, but. Um, um, and the mince pies and things that you know that's going to give him the um, sugar boost, Abby. Right? He should he should be eating carrots a bit like the reindeers and things. Um, and I guess I guess you know Graham mentioned about about situational awareness and things. And um, Santa must must maintain his situational awareness. But you know there's many Christmas card examples of him falling off of roofs and, and getting stuck inside chimneys and things. So perhaps he doesn't have situational awareness. I guess. I guess we talk about never events and I suppose for me and and for all the little children out there the the um you know the the fear of a christmas never event um such as wrong wrong site stocking delivery would be would be catastrophic <laughs> wouldn't it really um so you know he need, he needs to work work with the team um you know everyone talks about rudolph and um you know the the shiny nose and things but but what about the the other members of the of the reindeer? Um, recently, there's been some new uh, words coming in, like like Santa's little helpers. Well, I mean that that to me is derogatory and subordinate. He shouldn't he shouldn't really use words words like that. I guess um, one would hope that he do, he does a team brief before before he starts. But uh, of course of course we've. Um, we've got we've got no no evidence for that and um and finally abby perhaps um i mean we use who checklists and things as you know and santa you know this published it um, evidence that, that santa checks list twice from the from the from the famous so right, song. Then. yeah yeah um <laughs> so that so that's published i think it was 1934 published in that in that song santa claus is coming to can so um yeah so he is so i think we have a lot to learn from uh, from santa but even he's not uh he's not perfect and he he's obviously making making mistakes here and there as well (laughs) graham i guess you'll be looking out for him on your flight paths if you're flying on christmas eve (laughs) Uh, well absolutely Uh, i i'm I'm not sure that uh, his licensing authority is uh, is well. It's clearly 
quite lenient in allowing that, that level of alcohol <laughs> consumption, which is slightly disturbing. But but on the other hand, you know, we've obviously you know, going back to the point before about system two. We, we we've got to celebrate the the success rate in delivery uh, that that is achievable by by Santa. So no, ab- absolutely. But I think but I think Graham probably he's going to be taking. You know, he does recognise the uh, the rest value. So so when he's flying over the the oceans, where there, where there's no no parcels to deliver, he's he is going to be taking a rest, even though he only works um, one day a year, of course. Do you think he's well, got like a sleigh autopilot? <laughs> you would imagine he's got he's got he's got quite a lot of miles to get through in a, in a night. So yeah, there's got to be some uh, some ad- added resource to help him. Abby, I'm sure. I feel like you need to go and watch after Christmas, Abby, if you want to learn all about his sleigh autopilot. Okay, that's some good Christmas watching for me there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Kat, I thought that was a really interesting discussion with Graham and Peter. I obviously um, loved our chat about um, Father Christmas, but I also liked the more practical points from Peter about making sure that you take a break and have a drink. And I know maybe Graham was trying to push back and make us understand that human factors is kind of a wider wider scope of um, things than just those more practical points. But for me, it felt like for a doctor working, you know, every day in the hospital, those are the things they could really do to make a difference to themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think that whole aspect of looking after yourself and your team, which is so important. And I think we do have this often this mentality of like, oh, you know, it's so busy. It's everything is a life and death situation. We've just got to keep going and keep going and keep pushing and keep pushing and not really recognising that that if we do that, as Peter says, our performance will will get worse and actually you know you you've got that time to see those eight patients on the list but if you stop and take that 10 minute break you're going to get through that work more quickly because you're working better you're you know making faster decisions you're thinking more clearly um and so really just reminding ourselves that breaks are you know not optional they're they're critically important um there's a good physiological reason for having them which is kind of always appeals to to clinicians i think um and making sure that it's not just us but everyone else in the team that is getting that time as well um and i think not feeling selfish about it you know not thinking thinking this is to help make our care safer and improve outcomes for patients, um, not just because we're being lazy and we need a rest. Um, and I, I think that other thing for me that resonates is about not being too self-critical. Definitely. I think I hope that that resonates with people listening and that they can sort of put some of these things in practice, even though at the moment it's a very busy and difficult time. Well, that's all we have time for on the podcast thanks very much to our guests peter brennan and graham shaw for coming and joining us and check us out on social media we're at bmj underscore latest on twitter where you can join the bmj wellbeing group on facebook and we'd really like to hear your ideas for what we should cover in future episodes until next time it's goodbye from us bye, bye.